Good morning, you're listening to 2XFM 98.3. The program is Subject ACT, where we delve into local and current affairs from an informed and curious view. We are on the autumn home stretch. I'm a little fixated on this season. It is my favourite. It's Monday the 2nd of May. I'm Becca Postorino. Today's Subject ACT delves into the ANZAC archives. I spoke to Dr Chris Clark, who has been writing and researching Australia's military history for over 40 years. We discussed Indigenous Australians and how they experienced war and recognition of their military service in Australian society, particularly relevant to the First World War. I also asked Canberrans what Anzac Day means to them and their understanding of Indigenous Australians' military history. And finally, we hear from Australian playwright Tom Wright, who explored this very theme in his play Black Diggers, performed by the Queensland Theatre Company at the Canberra Theatre Centre in March last year. Coming up next, what does Anzac Day mean to Canberrans? Followed by military historian Dr Chris Clark. You're listening to Subject ACT for Canberra's local current affairs from a community perspective on 2XXFM 98.3. I'm Becca Posterino. What does Anzac Day mean to you? Uh, it's about commemoration, remembering the people who fought in wars. Did you know how many Indigenous soldiers fought in the First World War? Any idea? No idea, but I mean, I know there were some, and I know they weren't even citizens at the time. There were a thousand. I didn't know either. How does that make you feel to sort of not know that part of history? Yeah, I mean, I'm, I'm aware of bits of it because I know of someone whose father got honorary citizenship after fighting in the Second World War as an Indigenous man. You're aware, but just not of the numbers. Do you know what Anzac Day is about? Not really. That are not alive anymore. Do you know what it commemorates? Them dying. Did you know how many Indigenous soldiers fought in the First World War? No. Do you know there was over a thousand? That's a lot of people. So does it mean much to you guys, Anzac Day? Is it just a holiday? You get a day off school, you know. I think Anzac Day is an appalling day because all this nonsense about this as Australians became Australians, it was just a slaughter. It was the most appalling slaughter and nothing to be proud of. The whole war should have been stopped. I'm a member of an organ. I've, I've fought for peace. I'm 84. I've worked for peace all my life. And to say that these men made the supreme sacrifice, they were slaughtered. And it was just terrible for them, those men. And it was, it was obscene. Do you know how many Indigenous soldiers fought in the First World War? No, I don't. And I know that they, they didn't get recognition yeah it's a, the whole war is obscene i have spent my life standing up for peace what anzac day means to you uh, anzac day to me is uh, really australia's special national day because i think the combat in gallipoli on anzac day i think very much set our, our national agenda. We became a nation out of that defeat. So I think we celebrate, it is a defeat, but we celebrate the coming of a nation. Did you know that a thousand Indigenous soldiers fought in the First World War? And there was a Memorial Day last year, it was a separate event out the back. It was, um, yeah, it's pretty good. Do you think there's enough recognition for Indigenous soldiers? I think there's some recognition. I couldn't say how much of enough was enough, I wouldn't know, but there is some, yes. What does Anzac Day mean to you? Ah, means remembrance and remembering people that sacrificed everything for what we have today. That opportunity to remember them and thank them. 
Did you know that a thousand Indigenous soldiers fought in the First World War? I didn't know there would be a thousand, but you know, it's, uh, I, was, I was aware that they were there. I'm a I'm Māori from New Zealand as well, so we recognise our Indigenous people as well. So no, I didn't know there was a thousand, but no, it's, it's good that it's, it's been recognised. If you could share what Anzac Day means to you. It means that we're a free country. And did you know that there were over a thousand Indigenous soldiers that fought in the First World War? Were you aware of that? There's possibly more? No, no, a lot we aren't told. Do you think there needs to be more recognition for Indigenous soldiers? Yes, I do. And why is that important? I think people need to be more aware of what really went on years ago. What does Anzac Day mean to you? Oh, well, Anzac Day means there was a war, World War I, and Anzac Day is what commemorates it. And did you know that there were over a thousand Indigenous soldiers that fought in the First World War? No, I didn't. Do you think Australians need to know that Indigenous Australians fought in the war? Yes, I think so. Why do you think that's important? Well, because they fighted to get their country back and they also got killed. So we should always remember the people that fought in the war. What does Anzac Day mean to you? Um, oh gosh, for me it's a really special day of remembering what people in our past have lost fighting for our country and also people at current times as well and what they do to, for us that are just normal everyday people. And were you aware that over a thousand Indigenous soldiers fought in the First World War? Yes, I was. And do you think there is enough recognition for Indigenous soldiers? I think that it's probably something that could be put out there a little bit more, make, yeah, bring a bit more awareness. What does Anzac Day mean to you? It's a time of remembrance, a time of sadness. When you think about the people who suffered so much, that's primarily what it is for me. Did you know that there were over a thousand Indigenous soldiers that fought in the First World War? I did know that. I think there have been some long overdue steps recently to remember those, those particular servicemen. I'm not so sure if there were service women as well. They were treated appallingly when they came back. Well, they were treated appallingly before they went as well. I do think it's very important that we acknowledge them. We're speaking to military historian Dr Chris Clark. He is a researcher and writer of Australian military history for over 40 years and is the author, co-author and editor of over 30 books exploring Australia's military history. His career includes being an officer in the Australian Army and later he worked with various government departments as a strategic analyst and historian as well as the Australian National University and Australian War Memorial in Canberra. He led the Office of the Air Force History in the Department of Defence for nine years and retired in 2013. Dr Clark is currently a visiting fellow at the Australian Defence Force Academy and currently lives in Melbourne. Fortunately for us, is visiting Canberra this week. Welcome to the program, Dr Chris Clark. Thank you very much, Becca. What are some of the striking discoveries that emerged as a result of your research? The most striking thing is the sheer numbers we're talking about. Mm. As I say, when Ravelli made this first foray into the field, they came up with a number of about 300-odd. Mm -hmm. Since then, because of subsequent research, that number has grown to about 1,000. It's now been established that the Second World War, for example, that figure was something like 3,500. Mm. And, and it was a population of 93,000 in Australia at the time? or was Indigenous people, yeah. Yes. Yeah, well, you know, this is 
one of the central problems you get in this whole area. The 90, figure of 90,000 would have been people who either were recognised mm. as of an Indigenous heritage and background or acknowledged it in themselves. It is a grey area. It's very difficult to be precise. And that is the problem with this whole area of research, mm. Aboriginal service, because because of the social conditions at the time and the restrictions that the army itself placed on admitting Aboriginal servicemen into the forces, it's hard to be sure who was an Aboriginal serviceman and yeah. who wasn't, or the degree to which they yeah. claimed Aboriginality. This whole area is still something. It's a work in progress because even at this late stage, even for the First World War, the numbers are constantly being added to mm. and subtracted as new people come up and can demonstrate that they are uh, an Aboriginal family mm. with the heritage proven all the way through uh, the records from last century. And only now are we realising that somebody who passed as white before was actually an Aboriginal uh, mm. serviceman. But one of the other areas that I think is quite striking about this, era, this whole uh, subject is that we've come into this halfway through the story to an extent. The First World War wasn't the first war in which Aboriginal servicemen mm. served. We've identified probably up to a dozen who served in the Boer War, which overlaps with, of course, the Federation of Australia. And when you look a little bit further back again, we're sure we've identified a very f small number of men, but nonetheless... They served in the colonial military forces. Mm. Now, when you look at what was going on in mm. Australia at the time and the sort of society Australia was back mm. in that time, this is really surprising stuff. Mm. If you consider that Australia is still coming to terms mm. with the level of violence that was inflicted on the Aboriginal population by white settlers during the colonisation period, if you consider the wholesale bloodletting that went on as white settlers and pastoralists in particular sought to move the Aboriginal people off their traditional lands so that they could claim it for themselves and turn it to productive use. Aboriginal people really had very little to identify with the armed forces. In the first 50 years of Australian settlement, the British Army in Australia was one of the prime vehicles for brutalising the Aboriginal population. They bowed out of the story around 1838 and subsequently it was military police, uh, not military police, uh, mounted police, other law enforcement uh, elements and of course pastoralists themselves in particular acting illegally but we have to be frank it was obviously with the connivance of mm. colonial governments at the time that these things happened and yet it was the Australian armed forces have their or origins in the colonial militias that were set up uh, following the departure of the British garrisons from Australia in 1870. If you look at the whole period of the, the settlement period, the sort of massacres and atrocities that were inflicted on Aboriginals in remote parts of Australia, what we like to call the frontier, there's a case that can be put that that went on up until the 1930s. And yet here we have an Indigenous community who have very little to be thankful for for the military, and yet they are quite happy to enlist. One of the big unknowns in this whole area is why? Mm. Why would they be interested in serving in the armed forces? And yet they did in such large numbers that we've just discussed. Up to a 1,000 in the First World War, 
there was no means of really identifying exactly what were the causes for or causes that got Aboriginal men to want to enlist. Is there any contemporary historian accounts diarised or any Indigenous soldiers that kept diary at the time? No. Literacy amongst the Aboriginal Mm. community was not high in that period. Uh, We didn't encourage them to seek an education. There are a number of figures who have been identified as having been raised in white households and had quite good education Mm. and and they form one of the more interesting elements in this whole story. But there is no real documentation Mm. that helps us here. It means people have looked a lot at army records as a means of trying to firstly establish who were the Aboriginals that Mm. actually enlisted and also working out what the army's policy actually was because it certainly shifted. We know before the First World War there was active discouragement made towards enlisting Aboriginals in the armed forces and I mean particularly the army because uh, in 1914 for example we only had the army Mm. and the navy there was no air force as such but the army had a policy of excluding anybody who was not substantially of European origin or descent. Mm. Just as Aboriginals had been excluded from the census, full-blood Aboriginals, I'm Mm. sorry, uh, and uh, and I I use that term recognising that the Indigenous community today take offence at defining people in terms of full-blood, half-blood, quarter-caste or anything like that. Mm. Unfortunately, these are the terminology that applied back in 1914. Mm. So the army would was very reluctant to take full-blood Aborigines or any Aboriginal who had been raised in a tribal environment. Mm-hmm. It's unfortunate because I think there is a tendency now for Australians in, in the first part of the 21st century to take great offence at all that mm-hmm. and feel that the army should have been more liberal and open-minded. But as I said earlier, you know, we have to take into account the sort of society we're talking about yeah. back then. Period of history. Right or wrong. Exactly right. And, uh, I mean, we're talking about an era in which Australia uh, enforced a policy of white Australia Mm. for immigration purposes. So So if they were capable of that. Yeah, exactly. I mean, that was used to to exclude Asian races in Mm. particular. Um, And some of the various European races as well. Yes. There's a tendency, I think, to judge the army in terms that don't really apply. The army is not there for the purposes of enforcing social experimentation. Uh, They were there for the defence of the nation. And from their point of view, their concern was whoever they enlisted had to be able to fit in within the ranks of the armed forces. They had to be able to demonstrate that they could live within the close environment that involved in army barracks. They had to be accepted within the group of which they were peers. And the Army's concern was that an Aboriginal who was markedly of Aboriginal appearance and had lived in a a bush environment, for example, would not mix in and would become a source of friction and breaking up the cohesion of the the group. Mm. It's an interesting point of view. Well, exactly. And it's what applied and what the Army tried to enforce initially. There are a number of factors that stand out in contrast to that. For example, it has been discovered that a lot of Aboriginal men, there are a number of Aboriginal men who have been now subsequently claimed or identified as Aboriginal, perhaps as many as 50, who served at the Gallipoli Landing. I would think 
without knowing precisely, because as I say, this is such a grey area mm. and it's very hard to be sure without a lot more research being done. But I, I suspect they would have been men who could have passed as white and therefore escaped the the army dragnet, if you like, or mm. the, the army uh, tests that would have applied yeah. to Aboriginality. But for every generalisation you care to make in this area, you will invariably find personal instances that defy that rule. Mm. And I know I've had a couple of people say to me, well, so-and-so served at Gallipoli, and when you see photos of him, he was obviously of Aboriginal descent. So why did the army let him in knowing that this um, prohibition existed within army regulations. With what you've just said, maybe because they saw the potential for that individual to fit in. Exactly. I think that I think that is always case. the criteria that applied. And, and what you also see over the course of the First World War, particularly after the RAF finished with the Gallipoli campaign and was put into action on the Western Front, the Australian, the RAF began suffering enormous casualties. I mean, on Gallipoli, for example, over a nine-month campaign, we had about 8,500 killed. On the Western Front, 8,500 killed would have probably been in the first couple of battles in which the AF got involved at Fromel and Poziers, Mirko Farm, those sort of actions. I mean, at one stage, the, uh, the four Australian divisions on the Western Front suffered 26,000 casualties over six weeks. Our casualties are not all deaths, mm, sure. but uh, still an casualties enormous portion of them were. So Australia as a community, as a society, had to get used to those sort of Figures. Uh, losses. Mm. But the real problem was maintaining the strength of those forces on deployment. Mm. I mean, we had to step up recruitment. You so know, maybe uh, there were cracks. There, there was a relaxation on the restrictions in who you let into the forces. Mm older age groups, men who might have been excluded because they were married or because they only marginally met the recruiting sta- health standards, mm. uh, they would be now let in. And the same thing you see with Aboriginal servicemen. Uh, the re- recruitment authorities were much more inclined to turn a blind mm. eye, uh, certainly if they saw that a man was sufficiently socialised that you know, he'd fit in. Mm. And you know, it really didn't matter up to a point. Certainly once they had got in, you know, whether they're Aboriginal or not. Mm. Once they demonstrated that they could assimilate the training and fit it in with the uh, social environment within a particular unit, they weren't disruptive to cohesion. The army really did not care. Mm. Uh, And I think that really is what you see. But that said, there's this curious thing that goes on throughout the war where the army either decided or some individual within a unit decided that they did not want an Aboriginal man in their unit, quite often they reverted back to enforcing that regulation. So you'll find a man's file and... So they used it, it as a catalyst or, or bargaining... As an excuse to, to remove somebody that, that was disruptive or sure. was failing to meet some other expectation mm. on other grounds. But they did it on the grounds of not of European mm. descent. It's quite striking that you'll find instances of that happening where a man, long after he'd been Mm. enlisted, long after he'd finished recruit training and he's actually in a unit, only then they choose Mm. to enforce it. 
And sometimes you'll find it in the same battalions mm. where there are other Aboriginal servicemen also serving. They're not. So it becomes it, it purely a pretext or a, an excuse, yeah. a convenient means of saying, well, you know, we need to get rid of this man, but they'll do it on those grounds rather mm. than say there's some other failing with them. Mm. And, and I mean... And I think you know, that, that's something we have to take into account whenever we look at Aboriginal service that, and, and try and think what we're seeing here as a group. A lot of Aboriginal servicemen, the group of Aboriginal servicemen, when you look at them as a, a cohort, uh, they really match pretty much their non-Aboriginal comrades mm. in that there's men who are extremely capable, committed. Mm. Um, Why wouldn't they? But, but you also get some of the characters who are less desirable. Yeah. And, as, and you, as you would in As you do exactly in the white group. Mm. So, you know, not solely a case of cracking down on misbehaviours or mm. anything like that, but unfortunately you do find some who are like that. There is a pattern that you've seen in exactly. your research. And, and I think it's, it's interesting, we were talking earlier about it being very difficult to determine what would mean the motives mm. for these people to enlist. Well, we've already identified that when you look at non-Indigenous Australians who enlisted, there's a vast array of factors that prompted enlistment. Mm. And I suspect if you if we could ever get to the bottom of it with the Aboriginal servicemen, I think you'd probably find that there's a, a huge array of motives yes. impelling them as well. Yes. There's no simple explanation. What is so frustrating is that the records do not exist mm-hmm. that allow you to get anything definitive in this area and in the absence of that you get a lot of wild speculation and and Mm. people making assertions that Mm. really aren't based on anything concrete exactly and because the records that we have to work with are often so incomplete or they're complete but because the army didn't discriminate per se whether they don't as they do now specify uh, yes they we now ask uh, Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander personnel. Are you? That, uh, yeah, we ask them, are they? And we do that now because the services are very keen to make sure that their manpower or their strengths re- are reflective of the Australian community as a whole. Uh, it is no longer acceptable to have the ranks of the army, for example, exclusively a preserve of white Anglo Saxon mm. Protestants. Mm. We look for the armed forces to be a reflection of the community they are meant to serve. Mm. That's not to say that we engage in social engineering to mm. achieve that, but we actively encourage and and seek to qualify that we are, in fact, meeting some sort of standards in ensuring that we, we are getting at least quotas, if you like. But back then, we didn't ask that. And so we're quite often reliant on a medical officer who will simply include some comment that makes it clear mm. we actually are dealing with an Aboriginal serviceman here. So you're looking for other clues from... Exactly. Not necessarily the obvious no. places. No, you can't even say skin colour or eye colour or hair colour simply because there are so many that just don't don't fit that simple criteria. Mm. And this is where we become extraordinarily reliant on uh, Aboriginal families who... Mm who uh, have been researching their own family history and they stumble across, oh, Uncle so-and-so served in the army mm. in World War I. Uh, and, and they are very proud of that mm. fact. And it's only now the War Memorial is actually getting a lot of families mm. helping 
with identifying mm. ancestors who are in this category. It's a jigsaw puzzle. It, it is exactly <laughs> a jigsaw puzzle. And I hate to say it, but we really don't have the complete picture no. at, at this stage. Dr. Chris Clark, thank you so much for coming in. Thank you, Becca. You're listening to 2XXFM 98.3, Canberra's alternative and independent community radio station. The program is Subject ACT, where we explore local current affairs from an informed and curious perspective. That was Dr Chris Clark, Australian military historian, and before that, we heard from local Canberrans who shared their thoughts on the significance of Anzac Day. Coming up, playwright Tom Wright talks about his play, Black Diggers. I'm Becca Posterino for Subject ACT, 2XXFM, 98.3. Black Diggers is basically a telling of the stories that we haven't heard much of about Aboriginal soldiers of World War I. It's the blooding of the nation. It's the first great war that we had after Federation. And to know that Aboriginal people were part of it is kind of forgotten. And so for me, there's a real invitation through these stories to come in and experience something, to sit down and understand Indigenous Australia a little bit more. The white man needs us coloured boys now Here in the shift every face is brown You see the world turned upside down See the world turned upside down A hundred years ago, Aboriginal people were uh, mostly on missions or reserves. Uh, you could get permission to, to be off the reserve to work as a domestic servant or go work on a, on a farm or work in the city in manufacturing or, or whatever. But when people joined the AIF, suddenly all of those things just went away. Suddenly you were able to travel because you were part of the AIF. You were able to earn the same amount of money as a non-Indigenous person because you were part of the AIF. There were certain freedoms. And I think what motivated a lot of Aboriginal people is, number one, a certain sense of patriotism. A lot of men are going off to war. There's a sense of that's your duty. And I think that Aboriginal people weren't immune to that. Number two, I think there was a sense of freedom, of adventure, a, a sense of moving through the world in different ways, as all young men do, seeing something in another world that's outside of your experience. And number three, I think it was about trying to escape that oppression. You know, young men, you know, sometimes 16, 17, lying about their age, lining up and going overseas because you know you're going to earn money, you know you're going to be able to travel, you know you're going to be able to experience things that you can't do if you sit in this government reserve. We're here because we're here and now we're here. And that's what it is. And the whole world's going to have to organise itself around us. Mm. Well, you can't put history back in the bottle, mate. When Aboriginal men got to the battlefield, it was not that different, really. Like, you were, you were often just one Indigenous person in a unit of mostly non-Indigenous people. And so you had to deal with maybe some forms of racism. But it's interesting, the military have um, the way you train and when you face death day in and day out, or your bombardment or all those things, those bonds are really strong. Once you face death together, you have to face life together. And that's a really important thing. You lose a few mates, then they lose a few mates. The whistle blows and we gain another cricket pitch of bell. The horn blows and they chase us out, but most of the time we just sit here and sing our songs while they sit over there and sing theirs. The stories are not just about being courageous in the face of an enemy, but about how you lived your life when you came back. 
and there was an incredible amount of disappointment, I think, because they had, expect, they had experienced these incredible bonds, these amazing friendships, and when they came back, they went straight back to what it was like before they'd left. They were under the rules of the Protector or the Protection Act. They, their money was taken away from them. They couldn't get soldier settlements in the same way that their non-Indigenous mates could, or going to different memorials was being rejected all the way through to the 1967 referendum. This was still the case. We're gonna grow old and grey sitting here. Oh, I'd rather grow old than never grow old. What I like to do as a theatre maker, especially in the Indigenous context, is to make sure that these stories have, a, have this platform, that we're writing onto the public record a history that isn't spoken of. Well, spoken amongst our families, but not publicly. And that part of this country's entire storytelling of what is part of that, that we are as a country united in our history, not divided by it. Because a hundred years ago, it's not just about what you can prove, but it's about what you can feel about this story and how this uh, feeling has importance where we are now. You're listening to 2XXFM 98.3, Canberra's iconic community radio station. The program is Subject ACT, exploring diversity in local current affairs. That was playwright Tom Wright discussing his exploration of Indigenous Australian war history through the medium of theatre and his play Black Diggers. Thanks for your company today as we delved into the significance of Anzac Day from a historical and contemporary perspective. Next week, I speak to visionaries of the John James Village Project, Mark Blake and Carl Suwali. And tomorrow, Doug Dobing brings us Tuesday's edition of Subject ACT. Stay with us now for Community Broadcast Network's 2SCR's topical storytelling, All the Best. Lovely to have your company today on Subject ACT. You're listening to 2XXFM 98.3. I'm Becca Costarino. Enjoy your day. 